0: Hello, and thanks for joining this special two-part edition of Thoughts in the Market. I'm Andrew Sheets, Chief Cross Asset Strategist for Morgan Stanley, and today I'm happy to be joined by Matthew Harrison, Managing Director and Equity Research Analyst for Biotechnology at Morgan Stanley. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Matthew, I think a good place to start is a little bit of background on yourself and the work that your team has been doing related to COVID-19. We've been spending a lot of time talking over the last several weeks within a research department, and we've been relying pretty heavily on the work that you and your team have been doing.
1: We've been focused on a few areas. I think first, we've tried to build some predictive models and looking at different regional aspects of this, so whether it's how it's progressing in Europe or the U.S., um, and then you know trying to figure out how, uh, broadly speaking, companies are going to figure out how to get employees back to work.
0: So I guess one question that i like to start with is, over the last weeks and months, you've seen a number of different forecasts for uh, how uh, large this outbreak could be, how it could spread, how how lethal it could be. And um, I I wanted to get your thoughts on how people should think about those different estimates. I think there are two things, right? Uh, Broadly speaking,
1: I think models are best for planning and preparation. Models are great for scenario analysis. And if you sit in a seat where you need to figure out how bad could it be, so how many ventilators do I need? How many hospital beds do I need? How many ICU beds do I need? They're great for you to think about different scenarios. And so there are two types of models that exist, right? There's what I'll call traditional epidemiologic models. And those models require or use what I'll label broadly fixed parameters. So they say, if you or I were infected, we are going to infect X number of people, and that's fixed. Um, and the number of infections are going to double at, at every X number of days, and that's fixed. And then you can try and adjust those parameters or use functions for those parameters throughout your model. But effectively, they don't assume the amount of intervention that has occurred here. In general, I find that they they've tended to overshoot because it's not sort of what they're made to do. The second set of models, which is what we've been using, which is more of an empiric approach. So they say, let's look at the experience. And, you know, the U.S. is lucky in the sense that we have a lot of experience from other countries already. Let's look at the experiences in the other countries. Let's try and model against that and adjust for certain parameters, which may be different in our country um, and focus on that. Now, inevitably, I think if you're a public health person and you're building these models, uh, I think probably because you know, public policy is going to be shaped by them, you're more likely to, let's call it overshoot than undershoot because you don't want the public policy response to be too light. And then, you know, people to be caught short and not have the appropriate amount of care available for people. Um, So I, I think there's also that sort of implicit dynamic at play here.
0: Interesting. So, you know, when you, when you were trying to forecast cases early on, how did you deal with the difference in testing across countries? And how much of an issue do you think that is today? Yeah, no, it's actually an important
1: question, not only for getting this right now, but for how the countries are going to deal with this on a long-term basis. So the first thing we tried to do is because we had the experience of other countries, namely Italy and China, and we knew approximately what their testing regimes looked like. We essentially used a scaling factor to adjust for the under testing of the US. And we developed the scaling factor based on population, um, number of tests done per population, et cetera. And so that's that's what how we developed our initial forecast. I think the second point that you raised, though, about testing and its relative importance is a good one. So the best example we have from a country is South Korea, where they've done an extremely good job of testing in some of the hardest hit cities in South Korea, they were testing as high as 30 to 40,000 people per million. Um, And that compares to even in the US, where in New York City, you know, sort of highest per capita situation, they've been testing around 14,000 per million. And in other parts of the country, right, the US may be still only in a couple thousand per million. So, our testing regime needs to go up a lot. And as we highlighted in a piece we wrote last week about getting the U.S. back to work, we think the U.S. needs capacity for about a million tests a day. And they're doing, on average, call it somewhere between 150 and, and 200,000 right now.
0: So that's a still, still a very large ramp up in testing that would be needed.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I think by the end of April, we'll probably be around 500,000. And then by the end of Uh, May, you know, hopefully will be around a million. Uh, The second thing to just remember is that it's not just the tests and the kits that you need, you also need all the stuff to make it happen. Um, So that's the swabs that you use in the back of the throat, and then the reagents that you use to run the test. And both the swabs and the reagents are in short supply. So you've got a lot of supply chain issues that have to be solved to get you to that point.
0: You know, we spend a lot of our time in research, you know, all of us do dealing with this issue of uncertainty, the, the issue that you and your team have been dealing with in trying to, you know, model the impact uh, of the virus and the work that the economists have been trying to do in terms of modeling that effect on the economy ha- has been, you know, even more uncertain than normal. So how have you tried to deal with all those different variables that can go into this? And um, what are some of the challenges that you've encountered? In biotech, it's sort of a funny thing,
1: you know, we're used to a lot of volatility, you know, most of our names, if they move up or down 10% in a day sort of seems like a normal day for us. So, um, you know, and to a certain degree, right, seeing a lot of unknowns is also what we deal with on a typical basis, um, because you have drug trials and, and various, um, you know, kinds of inputs to our companies. So I think we're comfortable with that. Obviously, here, the scope and the size is different. Um, and, and perhaps more importantly, you know one of the things here is um, you know trying to figure out what's the cleanest data set. And so for us, you know, we go back to the data sets, we try and figure out what's clean and what's not. Um, and then I think what we've been doing is typically before we publish things, we've been building tracking models that we look at internally, um, and, and we've been trying to gain some confidence before we put some forecasts out there. The second thing, which I think, is also important to talk about is just that we didn't really start this till after China moved through its peak. And so we had a lot of data and a lot of experience that we could rely on to see how some of the initial countries had moved through, which has helped us um, be a bit more specific about our forecasts. One other thing for me, what I'll call broadly the policy response. So you've obviously seen central banks intervene. You've seen governments intervene with stimulus. What's your view on, is it enough? Is there more to be done? You know, how how does that play out? And I I think for investors, how do you pull apart what's happening in the market that's related to COVID versus what's related to, you know, the policy response from central banks versus the stimulus that's related to governments?
0: So I think what we're seeing is, is a really important reminder of both the strengths and the limitations uh, of monetary policy, right? Over the last decade, we, we've really been living in this world that's kind of been in awe of the power of monetary policy. And often, you know, people have cared more about what the Fed is going to do next than, you know, what the next economic data releases or what the next earnings season will bring. And, and I think what we have in here is, is an important reminder that, that central banks, you know, usually can't Stop a recession. Um, that is, that's beyond even even their uh, immense power. That that oftentimes the things that cause recessions are both a large economic shock, like we're seeing today, but you often need late cycle conditions. Uh, you need uh, quite full labor markets, you need really confident consumers, you need kind of an excessive amount of investment. And, and we had all those things, I think, unfortunately, even before this started, we, you know, something that myself and Mike Wilson and, and others and the research team had been writing about for a little while is, you know, that we thought we thought the economy was showing somewhat late cycle characteristics. So, you know, I think on on one hand, it's important Uh, as a reminder that that central banks can't stop a recession. And and even with all of their actions, um, you know, Ellen Zentner and our U.S. economics team is still forecasting a severe recession. But that being said, it's it's not for lack of central banks trying. The, the, The Fed, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, they are all acting far more aggressively and far swifter than they did during the financial crisis, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. The you know having gone through the financial crisis, you um, I think are more adept to the playbook, uh, but also because I think this is an issue that's somewhat unique in lacking some of the moral hazard of other crises, and I think here because of the unique public health emergency that we're dealing with, um, you don't hear any of those concerns. And I think that is, I think, really um, emboldened central banks to to react to this more aggressively in a much larger way and and much faster than they have really to any other crisis we've ever seen. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon with part two of my conversation with Matthew Harrison. In the meantime, if you enjoy Thoughts of the Market, please take a moment to rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app. It helps more people find the show.